Welcome to the Big Mike Fund Podcast, where you learn about advanced wealth building strategies from real estate investing to creating massive ROI and secure retirement profits. So pour yourself a cup of coffee, grab a notepad, and lean in. Because Big Mike has got the mic, starting now. Welcome to the Big Mike Fun Podcast. I'm the Big Mike, Mike Zlatnik. Today it is my pleasure and a privilege to welcome Ryan Severino. Hi, Ryan. Hey, Mike. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you? I am pretty great myself, actually. So thanks for asking. It's uh, it's nice to be able to answer uh, with that after everything we've been through over the last uh, 16 months or so. That's right. It's been a wild roller coaster ride. Uh, call it the COVID ride. It, it's uh, been a disaster and a, and a fast recovery. So at least it feels like we're getting back to back to life, back to reality. Hopefully, I have enjoyed reclaiming my life over the last two months or so. So it's uh, after the previous previous fourteen months. It's it's been nice to start to feel normal again. Whatever normal is on the other side of this. Um, I'm starting to feel more normal, which which I take as a, as a very positive sign. Yeah, I, I share your 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 uh, sentiment and your uh, your happiness with the uh, with the reopening. So, could you tell folks a little bit about you? Where do you live? Family, as I call it, kids, cats, pets. Yeah, sure. Uh, I live in uh, New Jersey, probably about oh, 20 miles or so west of Manhattan. I've lived in the New York area almost my entire life, except for uh, when I was an exchange student in Japan in high school, and then uh, undergrad, I, I lived away for most of that time, except for you know summers and breaks and things. Um, I've been married for 17 years. My wife and I have been together for 23 years, so about half our lives. Congratulations. Uh, I have, um, thanks. I have two kids, uh, two daughters, a 12-year-old and a 7-year-old who are just... Uh, a lot of fun, uh, as challenging as, as it could be being a parent sometimes. And, uh, and I think we're, we are all very excited to, uh, to be on the, on the, what feels like the other side of this and you know, starting to do more normal things, you know, kids in school, going to camp, being able to, uh, to get out and about a little bit more. I think, I think we're all eager to, uh, to, to, to get past this and get back to what, whatever normal becomes. Yeah, makes sense. I, I know the drill. I'm, I'm married for almost 22 years and I have four kids Good and a you. cat. So it's, uh, <laughs> it's been a journey. By the way, I forgot to introduce you. So uh, Ryan is a chief economist at JLL and also he is an adjunct professor at Columbia and NYU. So uh, you're dis the distinguished professor uh, in one <laughs> world and chief economist in another one. Yeah, it's it's nice to be uh, in both worlds at the same time. It's uh, it's a different perspective than people who only only operate in, in one of those worlds exclusively. Yeah, I think uh, you you do you you're actually both the people that say you either do or you teach. Uh, doing both is a rare breed, so I, I think you fall into that category. Yeah, it's it's nice to be able to explain to my students what textbook says and then how it actually works in the real world because those are not always the same thing. That's right. So let's shift into some real interesting discussion. Let's talk a little bit about uh, inflation and the interest rates and what's happening in that world. But let's start with inflation. Uh, there's been a lot of uh, fear, concern uh, about the accelerating inflation. And um, what do you think? What's, what's happening out there? What, what, what are you seeing today? So certainly today we're seeing inflationary pressures that are the highest that we've seen in, in decades, to be honest. And, and I think that makes sense given what we're seeing in the world. I think it's 
in some ways, and I don't mean this to make it sound unfortunate, but it, it's a byproduct of the fact that we arrived at a place faster than most people, especially business leaders, thought we would get if you went back six, nine, 12 months ago. And what I mean by that is not only did we develop the vaccines quicker than I think initial expectations were, they are much more efficacious than people thought they were going to be. And at least in the United States, we, for all of the faults that we had in distributing them, we are among the leaders, certainly in the developed world of distributing and administering vaccines. And so the issue with that is the demand side of the economy came roaring back much faster than the supply side of the economy could. It's always easy to turn the supply side of the economy off. It's much harder to turn it back on, especially when if you think about our, our modern integrated globalized economy and modern integrated global supply chains, a lot of other parts of the world that produce things that we use, they are lagging us in vaccination. And so it's, 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 a, it's a very high class problem to have, but it's much easier to turn demand back on once you start, like we were saying, you get vaccinated, you start going out to dinners again, out to have a drink with your friends, people are starting to travel, go on vacations. It's very easy to bring the demand side of the economy back online once you vaccinate the population. Getting the supply side of the economy to respond as quickly is, is, is impossible. And so that's really where we are right now, where demand is, is really escalating, supply is struggling to keep up, and we get these temporary for the most part, temporary bottlenecks and where there's just too much demand relative to supply, especially when you think about where prices were last year. We're growing, we're, we're calculating inflation off of very low prices from last year. And so it, it has an outsized impact. That said, I think we are headed for, even once we move through this, inflation that's a, a bit above what we've gotten used to over the last business cycle or so, the last 10, 12, 13 years. I think that feels more like an anomaly to me, something that we probably shouldn't have gotten used to, but maybe too many people did get, get used to a little too easily. You know, the, the, you know, the Fed struggling to, to, to generate 2% inflation and those kinds of things. But I, I don't think that, um, you know, we're not going to be partying like it's 1979 anytime soon. I think it would be, um, it, it's hard to envision making the same kinds of mistakes in concert the way that we did in the 70s that led us to that kind of real damaging inflation the way that we saw it in the 70s into, into the early 1980s. Yeah, it's great commentary. So what I'm hearing is inflation will continue, but it's not gonna get into hyperinflation. It's not gonna get into double digits type of a scenario. Uh, yeah, un unless things really go wrong from here on out, because, because the good news is the things that are causing the inflation spurt that we're seeing right now, are temporary, right? Pent up demand on the part of consumers will not remain pent up forever. That, you know, the, the dry powder that they have sitting on their balance sheets as excess savings, that's already getting spent. So that will start to go away. The, the, the issues that we're seeing on the supply side, you know, bringing, you know, hiring people, being able to reopen bars and restaurants and have enough flights and things like that, that's already starting to abate. And then even once you think about, about you know, government stimulus programs, you know, deficit funding funded fiscal stimulus is not likely to happen again. There's very likely to be some kind of tax offset, which should mitigate that. And interest rates are already going up. They're not going up, I think, at the rate that some people thought they would be early in the year. But um, we're, we're almost certainly not at a juncture where interest rates are, are going to start to trend downward again in any meaningful fashion. And so those things that have really been been driving demand relative to supply should abate over time. And this is where I think 
some commodity inputs like lumber are really instructive. Lumber is still expensive relative to prices from last year, but we've already seen peak lumber prices and prices are starting to come down. Same thing for other, uh, other inputs to, to construction and development. We're already seeing prices start to back off. I think as we get through the balance of this year, as more countries get vaccinated, as more people go back to work, I think some of that will stick around longer, but I, generally I expect to see supply issues that we're dealing with right now become less onerous over time. Yeah, great commentary. I, I've, I've heard, again, being in real estate, I, I've heard this more than once, that the supply chain is sort of semi-broken, has been broken or damaged, and it is like moving a train. It's really hard to get it going again. Pushing it initially, it's very painful, and that's sort of, we've experienced that. So it makes a ton of sense. The one thing I did observe on the interest rates, at least in the recent movements of the 10-year treasuries, uh, it, it feels like it's retreated a little bit. It was really uh, going up from kind of the depths of the COVID, keep going up and up and up. And then uh, there was a slowdown to some degree. And again, the, the 10-year treasury is what the market uh, dictates, not a Fed policy <laughs> thing. That's at least, <laughs> it, it's supposed to be not a manipulated rate, but more of a market-driven rate. So any thoughts, is this just the market it's a, it's a temporary retreat or the rates are more or less stabilized and, and um, we're no longer, because the rates signal inflation, right? The rates, in theory, uh, the market is so large, it's the largest market in, in, in the world. The rates predict what's going to happen with inflation. Right now, the message is inflation is still going, but it's, it's slowing down a little bit. Is that what you're seeing? Yeah, I think if, if you look at what happened from where rates bottomed last year to the, we'll call it the, at least for now, the cyclical high or the recent high, you know, one seven or so earlier in the year, February, March, it seemed like a lot of people were getting concerned about the inflation narrative. And I think as, as more and more people have delved into this and, and, and studied it and thought about it, I'm not saying I'm exactly right on this, but I think some of the people who were most concerned about inflation earlier in the year have now backed off from those, the most dire prognostications about where inflation was going. I'll be honest with you though, I'm, I'm surprised to have seen it retreat from 1.7 down below 1.5. And again, to your point, it, the interest rate is whatever the market says it is. I still think rates are headed higher over time because I think economic growth is going to be strong this year into next year. Uh, I think inflation, as I mentioned, is, is is going to settle in probably at a level that's above what we've gotten used to, even if the kind of scorching inflation readings that we've seen, well, that's a little hyperbolic, but the high inflation readings that we've seen over the last couple of months or so don't stick around. I think eventually people are going to reconcile those things and say, okay, this is not the 1970s, but this is also not you know, 2013, 14, 15, 16 either that we're you know, somewhere in between. And I think, I think that is a good realization that we don't always have to end up at extremes, that we don't always, we don't have to end up in the 1970s, but we don't have to end up in the 2010s either. And we could still manage the economy really well in between those two extremes. Yeah, great point. It's sort of the rates may re revert to the mean and the mean should be hopefully a little bit higher than the Fed target, you know, two, two and a half, which has been a struggle, but now I know they, they, they were well above that level. Now, and that's an interesting, sorry, I was just going to say, that's an interesting way to think about it, right? Because if you think about, about you know, what the Fed's trying to signal with their forecast, the, the forward Fed funds rate 
should be the long-term interest rate, right? If you're, you know, if they're projecting out, you know, three, four, five years down the road. So if they're saying they expect the Fed funds rate to get up to, just for argument's sake, 250 basis points, then it's reasonable to expect long-term bond rates like 10-year treasury rate to eventually migrate up toward that over time. Whether or not that plays out remains to be seen because we know last business cycle they had difficulty doing that and we didn't have we didn't have interest rates in the sort of two to two and a half to three percent range for very long before the economy started to slow down and they backed off a little bit but that that i think is a good signal for most people to pay attention to i think people sometimes forget that the forward fed funds rate is intended or 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 could be utilized as a as a bit of a guidepost to see where longer term rates are headed over time yeah, great uh, thoughts again. Uh, as much as you can believe that the Fed does all the right moves, uh, right. I, I've seen they're always late. They're always late. They, they seem to uh, use yesterday's data to plan today's moves when in reality it should be the reverse. So, they, yeah, they, there's an interesting debate about how the Fed should be should be managing policy, and I think. Just going by what they've said, both in, in you know, their, their notes and the statements and, and, you know, Chair Powell's testimony, it seems like they're taking a very show me attitude toward this right now, which is, you know, we need to see exactly how this is unfolding before we're go- willing to make moves, as opposed to your point, the, the, the counter philosophy says, well, you should be anticipatory and, and, you know, make some changes in advance of those things. I think it's, um, I'm not taking a stance on that. I'm simply saying the Fed is, it does seem like this time around, maybe because of, I, I, you know, I don't want to speculate too much, but I think there was, at least in hindsight, some people were concerned that last cycle they raised rates too aggressively when, when the economy wasn't growing that quickly, when inflation wasn't that much of a concern. And it was one of the reasons why even heading into the crisis, economic growth was slowing down. I don't know if the pendulum has swung too far in the other direction right now, but it does seem like they've learned from that. And the approach they're taking is we want to see the actual data materialize first. And if we have to let inflation run hot for a little while, we are okay with that. And I think as long as they're, as long as they're clear and unambiguous about communicating that, I can live with that. And again, I'm not taking a stance on what they should or shouldn't do. I'm just saying from my point of view, I just want them to be transparent and unambiguous so, so I know how to think about it. Yeah, makes total sense. They're, they're certainly reactive and proactive. And and uh, is this a cardinal sin? No, I mean, they're letting low interest rates continue to fuel the economy. So from that perspective, yeah. it's not you know the worst thing in the world. But uh, let's switch a little bit. I was reading an article yesterday um, where there is a prediction of a stock market crash. Uh, it was Michael Murray and Jeremy Grantham uh, effectively being being, being both um, um, big, I guess, doomsday theorists that the market is about this. this we're about to see an epic stock market crash. Do you have any thoughts on this? Is this just some people um, like to put put out extreme statements and and um, kind of scare the world that this is coming? And um, I, that, I mean, are there real drivers other than very overvalued market based on you know p expansion and based on the theory that 
a lot of money is just speculating in the market. The people not investing, they're continuously speculating. They're paying any asset price. They're kind of using the momentum. It's moving in that direction. Let's just keep buying. What else can we do with the money? So any, any commentary on other, other big risks ahead that could, could, could severely impact the market? I, so I'm always a little bit leery about making grand proclamations about stock market implosion because those, you know, those almost never come true unless you're consistently doing that and eventually you're, you're going to be right no matter what. Um, but but I, I think it's fair to say that valuations are high. If you look at any, any reasonable valuation metric like cyclically adjusted PE ratio, the only time that we've ever seen valuations higher was at the height of the dot-com bubble and we know how that turned out. If you look at other similar points in time, where the cyclically adjusted P ratio was was you know at similar levels, um, you know 1987 levels, 1929 levels, that didn't end so well. That said, I think we have to reconcile that against a couple things. The first thing is interest rates are still incredibly low by historical standards. So if you if you dis, if you believe in you know valuation metrics, discounting future cash flows and things like that, then discount rates are pretty low these days. So valuations being high doesn't strike me as inordinate relative to the inflationary, uh, sorry, the interest rate environment. But the other thing I would say is a lot of the lofty valuation is being driven by a relatively small number of companies. I think the technology sector is really, and, and I'm far from the first person to say this, continues to take on an increasing outsized role. If you look at its percentage of the S&P 500 over time. And again, it doesn't, it's, it's not even just the entirety of that industry. It's really a, a handful of companies. Um, a lot of those companies have had a relatively free hand over the last, however far you want to go back, 10, 15, 20 to 30 years. Um, you know, they're, they're, they have quasi monopoly power, which is why they've been so successful. I think the risk that I see, and I, and this is hard to handicap, but if the regulatory environment changes, if, if antitrust policy and enforcement starts to change, that could potentially throw a wrench into, into that. But for now, it's really difficult to argue against these companies that are so dominant because they're effective monopolies. Antitrust is, you know, I'm not a very political person, but just objectively, I think is, is, not incredibly forceful right now. There's a lot of chatter about that, I think, across the political spectrum, but um, you're not seeing a lot of actual change there yet. That might be the one thing where I would say, if that starts to change, if it, if it moves from just being a conversation to actual enforcement changes, that would be something to keep an eye on. But for now, with those companies having quasi-monopoly power and interest rates still hovering at low levels, I think the valuations are... are rich, but I don't think they are dangerous the way that I thought it was with uh, the heights of the dot-com bubble where companies with no earnings were trading at, at such lofty valuations. A lot of these companies, it's the opposite problem. They have a lot of earnings. And I'd say in some respects, there's not enough competition in the market for them. Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, the quasi-monopolies, they're dominating and they continue to dominate. And uh, absolutely great point on the fact that in the post-COVID recovery, uh, I think a uh, majority of the, of the valuation increase has fallen on the small percentage of the, the market leaders. So that disparity, uh, in theory, it needs to correct. It needs to shift some of this. There should be some, some rotation, but it hasn't happened because of that 
monopolistic power. So what, this regulatory pressure would be almost like a black swan event if, if the regulators come in hot and heavy and try to put a lot of pressure. I was listening, um, at, um, number of states are suing, I think Google, and they're suing a few other uh, these semi-quasi-monopolies because of the, um, you know, what has happened during the, the, you know, the COVID and some of the manipulation that's happened. But uh, that aside, uh, you're not seeing anything major, right? The interest rates are staying low. By the way, the difference between these companies and the dot-com bubble, a lot of the dot-com companies were losing a lot of money. And the valuations right. were through the roof. So that was very unsustainable. But these companies making a ton of money, it's just their P ratios are uh, in stratosphere. But that's, you know, that's, that's been the norm because the, the growth of P has been, has been healthy. Right. And I think that's what a lot of investors recognize, that it's not 2000, that they're not paying for negative earnings. Maybe you could argue that they're paying, that the earnings, that the, the, the effective price they're paying for these earnings is a little frothy, but at least... You know, I'm not taking a stance on any of these companies, but if you think about, I won't name them, but you know the companies that I'm thinking about, they're making some pretty sizable earnings, these companies, especially yeah, all, all the when you take into account the ones big... that are plowing the money back in, right? I mean, again, I won't name any names, but you know the company that I'm thinking of that takes a lot of the money it makes and just keeps plowing it back into the company. Um, if they didn't do that, their earnings would look even better than they do now. And so I, I think that's where... The question is, is what is the price that investors think these earnings are, are worth? And, and again, until I really see significant change in antitrust enforcement, I think investors are willing to pay a high premium for those companies because I think they recognize that they're quasi-monopolies, that they have these platforms that, that dampen competition and they, you know, it, 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 it insulates them to a certain extent, gives them a bit of a moat around their business. Um, it's been hard to compete that away. You know, classic, this is what we're, we were saying before, there's a difference between textbook economics and classic economics. Textbook economics would say, okay, when these companies are generating, you know, economic rents, you know, basically just, you know, making money above what a, you know, a competitive, you know, sort of discount rate says that they should be able to make, somebody should come in and compete that away. But the platform effects make it really hard to do that. Um, so I, I think that's the question. Are the price that investors are paying for the earnings, is it appropriate? For right now, it's hard to argue that it isn't given the regulatory environment, but ask me again after that changes and I would, I would probably have a somewhat different answer for you. Yeah, great thoughts. The barrier to entry is still very high. I mean, uh, these are quasi-monopolies and almost impossible to, to, to break into the market. So unless regulators break them up, Right. Uh, it, it's they, they, they got kind of free sailing ahead. But let's switch a little bit and talk um, about housing market. So housing market has been hot, it's been on fire. It's been, it's been surprisingly on fire, obviously impacted by the supply chain type of environment. We, we've had a uh, lack of inventories for a long time and competitive bidding wars, people overpaying without any consideration for um, you know, fair market value. What is fair market value? It's what, you know, highest bid wins, right? <laughs> so uh, this continues to be the trend. And um, I personally worry about the trend continuing and affordability becoming an issue because um, uh, the the growth, the income growth is not keeping up with these price growths. It's, it's sort of a stagflation environment. The prices keep going up, the salaries are not. 
how people can afford higher and higher prices, it's unclear. It's more of a, um, they'll just pay a higher price because they want to, they want a house. They want to leave somewhere, regardless of what, you know, what, what are the economic consequences? So any thoughts on that? Is that going to slow down? I think the, the, diff, the, the damaged supply chain is, is hurting the new supply coming in, into, the, into the play. I've heard conversations where people built, but they can't get appliances. They can't get some final finishes. So they're <laughs> sitting on 90% done product. They can't deliver it, right? So I, I'm, I'm laughing at that because almost literally, literally across the street from me, catty corner to where I live, uh, you know, across the street, two houses down, they are now knocking down a house that they bought in not even recently. So in January, because I guess they've been going through permits and approvals for the last six months because the price would be even higher today. They bought it in January for about $600,000 to knock it down so that they could put up a house they'll probably sell for, I don't know, one and a half million dollars ballpark, something like that. The, the big problem is that we continue to be chronically undersupplied on housing, especially I'm going to call it affordable, but when I say affordable, I, I don't explicitly mean rent controlled or rent stabilized. I mean, anything that's, that's reasonably affordable to someone who's trying to break into the market. And, and a big part of the problem is, is that we not only do we not build enough, but we don't build enough that's that I, again, I'm using the term a little bit liberally, deem affordable, you know, houses that are 1400 square feet or less, something like that, because it just, it's not the highest and best use of the land when you're already paying a pretty lofty land cost. And so I see this as a consequence of the fact that supply is just simply not keeping up with demand based on demographic change. Just looking at demographic changes alone, we should probably have two to three million more housing units in the United States than we have right now. And the fact that we don't is now manifesting itself in prices. And to be fair, you know, prices were going up before this, but I think what, what this crisis did is it basically took anybody who was on the fence about buying a house and it pushed them off the fence onto the side of the fence that says we should go buy something. I think there, there were a number of people, especially people late 20s, early 30s, who were probably married, maybe didn't have kids or only had young children who were equivocating about this. They were thinking, well, we've been renters. We haven't been homeowners just yet. They've been biding their time thinking about this. And then all of a sudden the pandemic hits and then a premium on your own space really became important in a way that I think to a lot of people, it, it, it wasn't as important before this, right? The idea of sharing lobbies and elevators and um, living in dense urban areas, not as palatable during a pandemic as it is during non-pandemic times. And I think you, all of a sudden there were a lot of people who were living in the Manhattans and Brooklyn's and you know, San Francisco's and the Boston's of the world said, you know what, maybe this is, a, this is the indication to us that we need to shift gears a little bit. And I just think the supply wasn't, wasn't there for that. And I think that was, you know, to an extent, that was, I think, a mistake that a lot of people in what I'll broadly call the residential market made. Because if you go back a decade or so ago, remember the big concern was about, you know, we, we kept stereotyping millennials, right? Oh, millennials, they're, they're never going to own anything, including their dwelling, and they're going to live in small small apartments that they rent in urban areas, taking their bicycles and or public transportation to their green open plan offices where they're going to, I don't know, hold hands and sing Kumbaya and be really productive, that sort of thing. That was never true. And the thing that people missed on that was that 
people kind of got stuck in place last cycle because the housing market was the epicenter of the downturn. It was really hard to get a mortgage initially coming out of the recession. Uh, people kind of got stuck in place for a while. People were not really willing to sell their houses because prices were down. But around the middle of the last decade, that started to change very quietly. And then I think the market just didn't respond to that. The market kept believing this narrative that millennials were different, that they were not going to move to the suburbs and become homeowners and care about school systems and things like that. And that was never true. And, and it went from being this thing that flew under the radar to all of a sudden people realized, oh, that was a colossal mistake. And I think the fact that, to your point, people are just buying up anything because they wanna have something, they wanna have an entry point and so I don't think the price increases that we've seen over the last year are sustainable. But that said, this is not the housing bubble of 2006, 2007, 2008, where people were lying on their mortgage applications to buy houses that they can't afford. If anything, what's happening is that people are, can afford these houses. So they're pricing people out of the market, which is why in, in what I'll call you know, good towns with, with good school systems, Entry-level Cape Cods, 1,500 square feet, are, are going for half a million dollars, six, seven, $700,000, because there's, you know, the people who would normally buy a reasonable $700,000 colonial or something like that are getting priced out. So they're having to buy the $500,000 square, you know, the entry-level Cape Cod. And the people who would buy that entry-level Cape Cod have, have nowhere to go in those towns. Yeah, great commentary. It's a substitution effect as affordability is getting worse. People are substituting to a smaller product, but they still want a product. And, and that, right, that, that's exactly right. Yeah, so it's it's uh, it's a bizarre world, and that's why affordable housing overall. And I, I I too define affordable housing is not your subsidized housing. It's very different. We actually invest quite a bit in the hotel conversions to affordable multifamily. And that's a very different ball game. Uh, affordable just means kind of below the average rent in a given area. So it depends on the area. If you're in an expensive area, that that average trend is a lot higher than if it's a you know workforce housing. So um, kind of uh, just a few more questions. We're almost out of time, but sure. just a final um, thoughts. So um, stimulus. The, what do you think about? Is this sustainable or we're running out of kind of the, the will uh, and the way to keep throwing massive stimulus forward? Sort of the pandemic is, is somewhat you know, under, under control. It's not perfect, but it's, it's in a much better shape. So uh, do you think the government is likely going to continue to make substantial investments? Um, or at this point, there's just not enough um, will to keep writing these outsized checks not supported by anything but by pure borrowing yeah i i think it's going to be hard from this point forward to make the argument that we need deficit finance stimulus just just objectively given how strong the economy is right now and i think you've already seen some pushback from that in washington not just from again not to be political but not just from the republican party but even some elements of the of the democrat party are saying well do we really need more deficit financing, which is why I think you've seen some of the proposals that the administration is trying to get through have been more of a challenge. And, and they've had to sort of meet, meet people closer to um, the idea that these need to be funded through some kind, of, some kind of revenue change as opposed to just going out to the market. That said, 
you know, we're, we are still far enough below the threshold that I don't, I don't worry about the debt balances being a structural problem yet, but clearly we can't keep borrowing like this ad infinitum. And the thing that concerns me is that the amounts that we keep borrowing, even relative to the size of the economy, keep going up over time. You know, we never really fully backed off of what, what we did with the financial crisis, uh, which was greater than what we did, uh, you know, in, in either of the two or three previous previous downturns. And this was clearly of an order of magnitude greater than, than anything we'd seen before, even the measures that were put in place for the financial crisis. And so my concern is that we can't play this game forever. We can play it for a little while longer. I don't think that the world is imploding tomorrow, but I think it's clearly how well the economy's responded over the last year makes it harder to argue that we need deficit finance stimulus, which is why I think whatever, whatever still comes out of Washington, whether it's uh, you know, infrastructure or, or something like that, is very likely going to have to have at least, you know, I think a decent portion of it backed by some kind of revenue change because uh, I think the appetite for purely deficit finance spending is, is diminished relative to uh, you know, what, what it was like in, in 2000 or even in early, early 2001. Yeah, great point. You're almost on, on, on the point, and I thought about this issue uh, before on the financial crisis that we're doing, what uh, package about 800 billion, and now during COVID, I think we spent about 10 times that, a, a, a yeah, trillion, just... something like that. So this, but what, what do you think about uh, the following? So is the debt to GDP ratio are uh, 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 growing concern because basically we are borrowing a lot of money relative to the total size of the GD of, of GDP and total national debt. And is GDP growing anywhere close to the way the debt is growing? It's not. At least it, it doesn't. It's not projected to grow that fast. So the debt growth relative to the GDP is is, is a little bit alarming to me. What, what do you think? Right. So this is where I think it depends on your your time frame. I'm not so worried about this blowing up tomorrow. But, but you're right, with debt growing faster than GDP, this is not, this is not sustainable. I, I think we're, the, the target on this admittedly keeps moving, but I think based on the, the, the most recent research, we're far enough below, below the, the gross debt to GDP threshold that I'm not, I'm not worried about it tomorrow. But what I do think is concerning me are two things. Number one, like I was saying, we've been borrowing a lot more over the last 10, 12, 13 years than, than I mean, I remember being as a, you know, as a kid in the 80s, People were freaking out. That's a technical economics term, by the way, freaking out. Um, people were freaking out about the amounts that we were borrowing back then. And, and that's nothing compared to what we've done over the last 10 to 12 years. So I'm concerned that the amounts keep going up. Um, and and what, that, what that means to me is I think it pulls the timeline to be concerned forward. How far? I'm not sure. Maybe about five years forward. So maybe this is more of a we have 15-ish years to think about this as opposed to 20. But what concerns me about it is that we are doing that against a backdrop that is generally not conducive, meaning we have a very significant structural demographic change in the United States with the baby boomers getting older, aging out of the workforce, increasingly drawing on the system, which means the number of people paying into the system is going down relative to the number of people who are going to be drawing on the system. 
Um, that's what concerns me about this. That if we had a if we had a younger demographic profile, I'd be less concerned about it. Um, not just because I think economic growth would be faster, but again, the people drawing on the system relative to the people contributing to the system, we'd be in a different ratio than we're going to be over the next 15 to 20 years. That's why I think that this is not tenable in the long run, that the amounts that we're borrowing cannot be sustained relative to our demographic profile. And that's just, I just don't see our demographic profile changing that, that dramatically in that short a period of time. Great point. And I'll just uh, pivot. We're a little bit over time, but it's such a great discussion. Uh, let's just take a, just a couple more minutes. Sure. So this um, number of uh, worker bees versus the retired bees, that, that, that ratio uh, has changed uh, structurally from 15 to 1 many, many years ago down to where we are now. Was it 3 to 1 or something like that? Um, uh, but are we moving towards Japan model? Because Japan essentially hit that pr uh, problem and uh, they, they, they have no choice but to uh, get the rates down into negative territory. And uh, are we likely going to be in that position with the aging population? Um, not enough young uh, people working, supporting the, uh, the, the payments to the folks who, who, who are past the retirement age. And what is the solution if we wind up in that? It's just keep, keep borrowing and keeping the rates very low into negative. Is this a real threat? Or uh, it's just, you know, we have, we, have, we have a model. Japan is a model, which is not necessarily a great model. So here's the answer to that question. And again, I don't mean this to sound political, but it's the honest answer to the question. It depends on demographics, which right now in the United States depends a lot on immigration policy. And I know immigration, I wish immigration policy were depoliticized because you're right, that dependency ratio has gotten worse over time. Unfortunately, immigration policy has become a political football. And, and, it, and it, to me, it's more of an economic issue. The reason Japan is in, the, to a large extent, the, the trouble that they're in is because they have a, they have a challenging demographic profile. And I, and, I, and I love Japan. I lived there as an exchange student for a while, but they don't have a very favorable view toward immigration. So with their birth rate falling below the replacement rate and not being incredibly favorable toward immigration, their population is starting to decline, which is a massive problem for economic growth um, and, and dependency ratios and things like that. I think the average person probably doesn't appreciate how important immigration has been to the United States out competing other developed, not just in terms of pure economic growth, but um, I could cite a whole bunch of metrics. Uh, immig immigrants create businesses faster than, than domestic born population does. They tend to work at a higher rate than the domestic born population does. They commit fewer crimes than the domestic born population does. We have benefited to such a large extent and it's just a shame that this is now a political football that gets tossed around. We're not easily going to be able to raise the birth rate, which in the United States has also fallen below the replacement rate. So to me, the easiest solution to this, barring the political side of it, would be to have an, an open but reasonable immigration policy. Right now, we have 9.2 million open but unfilled jobs in the United States. I'm sure a good number of those could go to people who would love to come here and work hard the way immigrants uh, have for, for the entirety of immigration in, in the history of what we think of as, as the United States. So I know that's politically incendiary. I know that's not an easy sell to people, but unless you can somehow incentivize people to start having more children, which is, which is that's not the trend in developed nations over time, 
the easiest solution to that problem, barring the political side of it, would be to have a different immigration policy. But that is a political non-starter among certain parts of the population these days. Yeah, great point. I'm an immigrant. I, I came here, I immigrated to the United States as a political refugee from the former Soviet Union. And I, I thought it was the greatest opportunity, to, it was the greatest country in the world that was coming to. I'm a U.S. citizen, U.S. patriot, and I completely support immigration as a way to supplement the, the declining birth rates. And also, as you said, immigrants do have often come with the uh, attitude that they have to make it in this country. And they were, and um, nothing against U.S. citizens, but immigrants, generally speaking, uh, they feel it's a great opportunity to come here, an opportunity to live here and to work here. And as a result, um, th there is that, that, that attitude that, that spells into uh, a little bit more of, you said, uh, business uh, startups, more um, just in general, uh, cultural and educational um, enhancement of the U.S. melting pot. It, 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 the U.S. Is, is, a, is a country of immigrants. So the moment yeah. we, stop, we, we stop letting immigrants in, it's a concern. So we need to have immigrants. We, we probably need to have a better policy to, and, and more legalized immigration versus what, what, what's happening right now. Unfortunately, it's a little bit out of control without take, taking political sides. But with more uh, uh, legalized immigration, I think we, we will accelerate some economic growth um, yeah, I, I, you know, again, to me, this is the, the low hanging fruit. And again, I'm not I'm not saying that we shouldn't have an intelligent policy, you know, porous borders and things like that. But I think especially and again, I'm trying not to get too political about this, but especially in a world where I think and this is true across the political spectrum, people are increasingly concerned about China. I'm not taking that stance per se. I'm simply saying in a world where Americans across the political spectrum, across the ideological spectrum are worried about about the Chinese military, the Chinese economy, them exporting their, their political influence around the world. You should want to have a bigger population to be able to more readily compete with them. You should not want to be closing the doors and slowing down your population growth. If anything, that makes it it makes it harder to compete. And and, and even just beyond that, I hate to think of, of you know this country, which has been such a beacon for immigrants throughout almost the entirety of its history, that once people get here, they just close the door on other people. Again, I, we have to have better policy about this. I, I agree. But the idea, the, the thing in my mind that has always set the United States apart has not been the size of our economy or the size of our military or you know whatever trouble we make around the world sometimes, intentionally, unintentionally, otherwise. I think it's been the fact that, that we are really this nation of different people. And it just shows the benefits of, of being that kind of place, which is, is open door and welcoming and, and does give people you know, sort of that, that, that ability to say, hey, come here, work hard, start a company, you know, work for an organization, however you want to approach it. That's not an opportunity that, that you're going to see in a lot of other places around the world. And I think it's been, again, it's been why the United States has been so successful vis-a-vis -vis just about every other developed nation in the post-war era. Um, I don't want to see us shut that off. I think it, it, it's, it's counterproductive in both the short run and the long run. Yeah, great final comments, Ryan. I very much appreciate your wisdom, your com, your 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 thoughts, your comments, um, and um, your support of of a great immigration policy. I, I certainly support that. So, thank you again. Uh, how would folks get a hold of you if they wanted to invite you to be, I don't know, a lecturer uh, or uh, just reach out with uh, any you know, thoughts? Is there a good way to reach out? 
for better or worse, I'm really easy to find. You could find me on LinkedIn and Twitter. Uh, I'm also easy to find if you just search for Ryan Severino JLL. Uh, I'm sure my contact information is uh, is certainly on the JLL website. But anyone should feel free to reach out. I, I, honestly, I'm, I'm more than happy to help if I can. Thank you kindly. Appreciate you very much and uh, enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks, Mike. You too. Take care now. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Big Mike Fun Podcast. To receive your copy of Mike's How to Choose a Smart Real Estate Fun Book, head to BigMikeFun.com or visit Amazon and type Mike's slot name. Keep listening and keep investing Big Mike style. See you on the next episode.